Welcome everyone, thank you for coming. Um, I'm really pleased to welcome Professor François Iraconati from uh, Institut uh, jean Nico in Paris, who is going to talk to us about fictional, metafictional and parafictional. Thanks a lot, Helen. Very happy to be here. First time I ever taught at the Aristotelian Society was more than 30 years ago, and at the time I thought that, I think I remember, we, wouldn't, we would talk to the paper rather than give the full paper. People were expected to have read the stuff in advance. That may no longer be the case, so I'm going to give the full paper. <laughs> okay, so, so I'm going to start with uh, issues on the side of language and, uh, and speak about fictional names, the names of fictional characters like Sherlock Holmes. It's common to distinguish three types of uses. Actually, I want to say what the relations are between those uses and how they should be analyzed. So there are three types of use. I mean, many people have drawn that distinction. The fictional type of use for a fictional name like Sherlock Holmes is the sort of use you find in the fiction itself. So if you read Sherlock Holmes stories, you find the name used in this fictional manner. And then there is the metafictional use, which is the sort of use that you find in uh, literary critic might use the name in order to talk about a fictional character, like in a sentence, Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character created by Conan Doyle. He first appeared in print in 1887, so that would be a metafictional use, very different from the first type of use that you can find in any sentence. The sentence here, Sherlock Holmes shook his head and lighted his pipe, I just made up, but, but we can pretend that it can be found in one of the stories. <coughs> so these are the two uses that are not very problematic, I find. I mean, sort of easy to understand, but, but a really difficult case is the parafictional use, the third type of use. And that's when you say something like, Sherlock Holmes is a famous detective investigating cases for a variety of clients. So you describe the, the, the character, what he does in the story. And you can even start by saying in the story or in the Holmes novels, in the Sherlock Holmes novels. And then you describe what's going on in the novel. And that's the sort of so-called parafictional use. So I'm going to say why it's difficult to understand what's going on in, in those uses. And actually, most of the talk is devoted to these particular uses. But I think that it's very instructive in general about the nature of fictional character to think about those uses. So let's start with the two types of use that I said were not particularly problematical. So the fictional use, I take it, is a use of the name in pretense. I mean, many people have said that. Of course, this is everything is controversial in that area, but I sort of accept this view. Then when you're a storyteller, you sort of pretend to be telling known facts to your hearer. Of course, you're not only pretending. Those are not known facts. And in particular, you pretend to refer to actual individuals, like you pretend to refer to a guy named Sherlock Holmes. You're not really, because there is no such guy. You're pretending. So it's all pretense, basically. And uh, there is a continuity between the children's game of make-believe and, and, and fiction, like the Sherlock Holmes stories. Now, because a fictional statement, like the one I started from, Sherlock Holmes uh, shook his head and lighted his pipe, because a fictional statement rests on pretense, it's neither true nor false in reality. We cannot say whether it's true or false, because we're not really saying anything. We're not really making assertions. Now, that's not the case for the metafictional type of use. If you say Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character created by Conan Doyle, on the face of it, that's true. Therefore, you're saying something, you're making an assertion, 
And therefore, it seems that you're referring to something. Because if the name you were using was non-referring, statement should be neither true nor false. It's obviously true. And therefore, it seems that you're actually referring to something here. Now, what does it refer to in this sort of statement, the name? Well, if the statement is true, it seems that you're referring to a fictional character created by Conan Doyle. Now, what's a fictional character, the sort of thing that can be created by an author? Well, it's a cultural object of some sort, uh, maybe an abstract artifact. Now, many people write about the exact nature of such entities, but they simply assume that there is some such thing like a cultural object, something that exists in virtue of the practice of telling fiction and so on and so forth. So an abstract artifact, a cultural object, something like I mentioned here, the Fifth Symphony, would be another case. OK. Now, as I said, those are, I take those uses not to be very problematic. The difficulty comes with this sort of use here. Holmes is a private detective, investigated cases for various clients, including Scotland Yard. Suppose that you're actually telling someone what's going on in the story, someone who doesn't know the story, so you tell them something about them. So here you have a predicate, being a private detective, investigating cases, and so on and so forth, that, that applies to the flesh and blood individual, not to the abstract artifact. You have to be a flesh and blood individual to be a detective, investigate cases, or play the violin, all those sorts of things that you can describe to Sherlock Holmes in this sort of a speech. So in that respect, parafictional uses are like the fictional uses, because they seem to talk about the flesh and blood individual not an abstract artifact. So that's very different from the metafictional uses in which clearly you're talking about a human creation, which is something else. But the difference between parafictional uses and, and fictional uses is that the parafictional statements are true or false, just like the metafictional statements. When you say, in the story, Holmes is a detective, that's true, like the metafictional statements. Even though you're talking about the flesh and blood individual who doesn't exist, but that doesn't seem to be pretense, because you're actually asserting something true or false. So that's very puzzling. In one respect, parafictional uses are like metafictional uses, because they say something true or false about the story, and they're serious. But in another respect, they're like the fictional uses, because you're not talking about an artifact, you're talking about a flesh and blood individual, ascribing properties to that guy, Sherlock Holmes. So because there are these, because parafictional uses are in some respects similar to the fictional uses and in another respect similar to the metafictional uses, there are two theories, I take it, two, two, two main theories, I mean the theories I'm interested in, are the two theories. One we may call the metafictional approach, which treats the parafictional uses as a variety of metafictional use. So there are the metafictional uses. There is a standard variety in which you say something like was created by Conan Doyle in such and such a year. And there is a special variety that would be the parafictional uses. And the other theory, the fictional approach, treats the parafictional use, uses as a variety of fictional use. So just another sort of fictional use. So that's basically the two theories I want to discuss. So I start with the fictional approach. In the end, I will actually argue for it. That's my favorite, but I like the other one, too. I mean, it's, the other one is very nice, too. <laughs> so what I'm going to try to do is to steer middle course, but slightly 
more in favor of the fictional approach, though. Okay. The view says that in a parafictional statement, like in Pernodal's stories, Sherlock Holmes is a private detective, and so on, the fictional name is used in the same way it is used in fictional statements, that is, in pretense. There is pretend reference to the flesh and blood individual portrayed in the fiction, rather than actual reference to the abstract object brought, about, brought into existence by the, the fictional practice. So that the, that's the view. It's, it's pretense. <coughs> The idea is that in describing the story from outside, the parafictional speaker plays along with the practitioners of the fiction. He engages into pretense as they do. So that's a view. Many people have held that view. Now, there is an obvious objection, a very striking objection. And there is also an obvious objection to the other view, of course. That's the reason why it's interesting. So the obvious objection here is that if this is pretend reference to a non-existent individual, then the statement should be truth-valueless, as fictional statements are. It shouldn't be true or false, because you're not referring to anything. But it isn't. As we've seen, parafictional statements are true or false on the face of it. So that's the obvious objection. And there is a response, fortunately, to the objection. And the response, so I could have multiplied the quotations. I've got here two citations, one from Evans. Pretense can be exploited for serious purposes. So you can use pretense to do serious things, in particular to say things true or false, or maybe to convey things true or false. Another quote from Tremens, statements and more generally uses of sentences that rely on made-believe can be used to express genuine claims and can be candidates for genuine truth and falsehood. So that's the idea. The idea is that just as you can imply, well, actually, there are all sorts of ways of cashing it out, this idea. I'm going to use familiar ideas from Grice, the notion of pragmatic implication, which is used by Grice to illuminate how you can convey something by saying something else. And here, I'm applying the idea to the case of pretense, which is just a special case. So just as you can imply something by saying something else, that would be a pragmatic implication in the standard sense, you can also imply something by pretending to say something else. That's another type of pragmatic implication. In particular, by pretend referring to Holmes and pretend predicating of him various properties, like being a detective and so on and so forth, the speaker pragmatically implies that these are these pretend acts, pretend acts of referring and predicating, pragmatically implies that these are appropriate moves in the game of make-believe that is licensed by the Conan Doyle stories. Now, these are appropriate moves in that game, only if in the pretend world of the fiction, that is, in the world as described by the story, there is an individual named Sherlock Holmes, and he has those properties like being a detective and so on and so forth. Therefore, the fictitious assertion, when you pretend to assert or pretend to refer to Holmes, pretend to predicate those properties, by so doing, you pragmatically imply something true about the fiction, namely, that in the world of the fiction, there is an individual who does such and such things. So that's a way of uh, using the pretense to actually communicate something true or false. As I said, there are different ways of cashing out this idea. And I'm just mentioning this way of going, which is basically what turns to give you the flavor. And I turn to the other analysis, the metafictional analysis. Here, the main tenet is that in a parafictional statement, again, in the story 
I mean, you may or may not say in the story, but basically you describe the story. You say Holmes is a detective and he plays the violin. In a parafictional statement like this, the fictional term Sherlock Holmes refers to the abstract artifact, not to a flesh and blood individual who doesn't exist, because there is actual reference. We want there to be actual reference because something true is said. To what are we referring to? Something that exists, namely the cultural object Sherlock Holmes. Certainly that object exists. So we refer to that object when we say Sherlock Holmes is a detective. Just as we refer to that object when we say Sherlock Holmes was created by Conan Doyle. That's why parafictional uses are just like metafictional uses. They, refer to the, they both refer to the abstract artifact. Now, there is an obvious objection, as I said, to this view. And the obvious objection, which I, by the way, already mentioned, I think, is that an abstract artifact cannot investigate cases nor play the violin. Those are properties of flesh and blood individuals. Now, these are the properties that are ascribed to Sherlock Holmes in a parafictional statement, like Holmes plays the violin and investigates cases. That's the objection. And as I said, there is a response to the objection, which is very ingenious and interesting. And it rests on, a, on an old distinction that was made by well, many authors independently, which sort of uh, strengthens the case for the this idea, that the fact that so many people have made, uh, have made a distinction independently of, of each other. So the idea is this. In, in Sherlock Holmes investigate cases and plays the violin, the fictional name refers to the abstract artifact, the fictional character, the thing that was created by Conan Doyle. But the properties that you ascribe <coughs> are not properties which the abstract entity to which you're referring exemplifies, because of course the abstract uh, object cannot play the violin. Rather, there are properties which the abstract object, the cultural object, encodes, which is different from exemplifying. So the, the distinction I mentioned, which many people have actually made, is between what some people call encoding and exemplifying. You have also the distinction between having the property and holding the property for a fictional character. So you have different sorts of uh, different relations to properties, as it were, for objects to have. The idea is that the abstract artifact, if it's a fictional character, encodes a list of properties, namely the list of the properties which the flesh and blood individual Sherlock Holmes exemplifies in the fiction. All those properties that are ascribed to Holmes in the fiction are sort of encoded by this abstract object. That's a cultural object that we all know about. The abstract object encodes those properties of the flesh and blood individual. But of course, the abstract object exemplifies other properties, like the property of having been created by, by Cronin Doyle in 1887. So that's the distinction. And thanks to that distinction, the fact that the abstract object cannot exemplify the property of playing the violin is not a problem. Because when you say Sherlock Holmes plays the violin, you're referring to the abstract object, the cultural object Sherlock Holmes. But the property you are ascribing is not a property which the abstract object exemplifies. It's a property that it encodes. And that seems to be right. OK. Now what I want to do is check the time. Yes, that's good. <laughs> and and uh, discuss an argument, a prima facie argument, for the metafictional approach. Uh, and most of the discussion will be a discussion of that argument. 
so the idea that that, that fictional terms refer to the same thing on both the metafictional and the parafictional uses, which is the claim which the metafictional <coughs> approach makes, that idea can be, that, that, that can be established, as it were, by means of what looks like a very simple argument, which I call the argument from anaphora. And to see how the argument works, you've got to consider the following discourse. So this is a two-sentence two two discourse in which you start with a metafictional sentence about the fictional character being created in such and such a year. So that's clearly metafictional. You're talking about the cultural object. And then you have a second sentence that's clearly parafictional. You're talking about Holmes and describing properties like investigated cases and playing the violin. And so you have this discourse. Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character created by Cronin Doyle. He is a private detective who investigates cases for a variety of clients, including Scotland Yard. And that's fine. That's, this discourse is, I believe, acceptable, I hope. But now, what's interesting is that there is an anaphoric connection between the two sentences. Even though one is a metafictional sentence, the other is a parafictional sentence, there is this pronoun, he, he, he is a private detective, that's anaphoric on the name Sherlock Holmes in the first sentence. That's what's interesting. That's interesting because the anaphoric link between the name in the first sentence and the pronoun in the second sentence reveals that the second sentence, that is the parafictional statement, he is a private detective who investigates cases, and so on and so forth, that sentence is about the same entity as the metafictional statement Sherlock Holmes was created in 1887. But we know that the metafictional statement is about the, the cultural object, the artifact, the abstract object. Now, if the metafictional statement is about the same thing as the metafictional statement, and the metafictional statement is about the abstract object, this is a proof that the parafictional statement is also about the abstract object. And that's what the metafictional theory had been saying all along. So that's interesting. That's the argument. Now, of course, it can be resisted. And I think it should be resisted to some extent, because it relies on a premise that's sort of here implicit, but we can make it explicit. We can call it the anaphorical reference principle, ACP. I'm going to call it ACP. That's the idea that if you have anaphora, then you have coreference, or at least something maybe weaker than coreference, like conditional coreference. If there is an anaphoric link between a pronoun and the name serving as the antecedent for the pronoun, the name and the pronoun refer to the same entity if they refer at all, something like this. That's what anaphora is supposed to be, coreference, or conditional coreference. Now, there are counterexamples to that principle. That's why I'm saying that we can resist the argument, because we can question <coughs> this, this premise, the ACP. Here is a counterexample that comes from the study in, uh, in computational linguistics and, well, mostly in computational linguistics, there is a, also in lexical semantics, there is some interest for the phenomenon of so-called co-predication. So that would be a case. Actually, it's a variance, not exactly co-predication. Co-predication would be a sentence like, lunch was delicious, but took forever. That's co-predication. Why is it co-predication? Because we're using, we're, we're talking about referring to something, lunch, predicating various things in the same sentence, 
but actually the predicates apply to different things, not to the same thing, even though we've used a single expression. We've, talk, we've used the expression lunch, but we are talking both about something, which is the food we had for lunch, and we're talking about something else, which is the event, the social events. When we say lunch was delicious, we're talking about the food. When we say lunch stood forever, we're talking about the events. Those are not the same thing, but we can sort of co-predicate, say lunch was delicious, but stood forever, and that's fine. And in the same way, we can have anaphora, as in this example. Lunch was delicious, but it took forever. Here we have an anaphoric link, and despite this anaphoric link, the two things that we're talking about in each of the conjuncts is not the same thing. We're talking about food in the first conjunct, the social event in the second conjunct, but still we're using anaphora. We're using anaphora because these two things come together. They are very closely related. The food is the sort of thing that we we have during that event or something like that, or that event is the event of consuming food or whatever. So the conclusion from cases of co-predication is that the existence of an anaphoric link does not establish that the two linked terms refer to the same entity in any strict sense. So it's not really the same entity. That's the way of resisting the argument. Now, there is also a way of resisting the, the, the counter-argument, I mean the objection, on the part of the people who defend this idea that, uh, that the, the ACP is correct, that is that whenever there is an aphora, there is co-reference. And actually that's where the, I mentioned people in computational linguistics, co-predication has been discussed by many people outside that field, but in that particular field, they invented a new sort of object to deal with this sort of case. It's, 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 the name for that sort of object is a dot object. And the idea is this, two entities, well, let, let's con concentrate on this, the case I've just discussed, the lunch case. The two entities respectively referred to by the, by the two terms that are linked, like lunch was delicious, but it stood forever. The two terms are lunch in the first sentence, it, the anaphoric int, it in the second sentence. They refer to distant entities, the food and the social events. But these entities are tied together as two facets of one and the same dot object. Now, what is a dot object? Very, I mean, the literature on this is extremely technical and sophisticated and great in many ways, but very hard to understand too. <laughs> so there is this notion of dot object, which is a formal notion. It's sort of a mixture of two different things. The, and, 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 and the suggestion is that there are those hybrid, hybrid entities. And what makes anaphora possible is the fact that we're talking about the same entity twice because it's the same hybrid entity, but different facets of the same hybrid entity. And because it's the same entity, there's something like a form of coreference. Now, the paradigm example of the dot object is a book. A book is supposed to be both a material object and also an informational object, as they say. And uh, of course, there are different ways of counting books depending on whether you construe book in, in the material object sense or in the informational object sense. But a book has, is both a material object and, and an informational object. And, and you can have co-predication. You can say that book is interesting, but too heavy to carry along. So what's interesting is actually the book uh, qua informational object but heavy and so too heavy to carry along. It's really a property of the material objects, something else. And you can also have the, the anaphoric variants. 
that book is interesting, but it is too heavy to carry along. So the idea is that in those loose cases of co-predication, the subject term refers to the dot object. So it's, there is co-reference, because you're, each time you're referring to the dot object, even though it's not the same facet that being uh, in focus. Now, if we can have dot, uh, actually there is a long list of dot objects in the relevant literature. I'm not going to give you the list, but, but I thought if we can have dot objects to account for an aphora in those cases, why not do the same with the case of fictional objects? What's very surprising is that the people who have written extensively books about dot objects, they are also interested for other reasons in fictional characters. And they talk a lot in those very books about fictional characters. But for some reason, they never consider the possibility of considering fictional characters themselves as dot objects. But look at this quote from uh, Everett. It, it seems like a description of a dot object. He says, we talk about fictional characters simultaneously as if they were real people who did what they are portrayed as doing in the story and as fictional things that are created by authors play roles in plot and reflect the cultural and social prejudices of the author or the society which gives rise to them. So there are really these two facets of fictional characters. And when we talk about them, sometimes in one facet, sometimes it's the other that seems to be dominant. So that looks very much like talk about dot objects. And indeed, we find the same phenomena of co-predication and, and anaphora, as I've just mentioned. So let's consider fictional characters as dot objects, that is, complex entities or hybrid entities involving both the flesh and blood individual targeted by the fictional pretense and the cultural artifact brought into existence uh, via the, the fictional practice. So if we accept dot object here, we can say that Sherlock Holmes was created by Conan Doyle in 1887. He is a British detective, as in our co-predication sentence. We can say that here we refer to the dot object twice, same dot object. So that's why there is an aphora. And therefore, there is co-reference. And therefore, the argument holds, the argument in favor of the metafictional approach. Now, sorry for the complication, but I think, again, that the argument, even at this point, can be resisted, even if we accept dot objects, which I'm going to question in a moment. But even if we accept dot objects, I think the argument can still be resisted. Because what the argument establishes is that throughout this co-predication discourse with these two sentences, the first sentence metafictional, the sentence parafictional, with this, with this link between them, Throughout this discourse, the argument establishes that we are talking about the same thing, the same fictional character. That's, that's the idea. But note that the notion of fictional character has, has changed with the introduction of dot objects. Originally, the debates between the fictional and the metafictional approach concerned the following issue. Does the fictional name in a parafictional statement refer to the abstract artifact as per the metafictional analysis? Or does it refer, that is, pretend to refer, to the fresh and blood individual as per the fictional analysis? That was the debate. And now we've got dot objects. And dot objects are a type of object that involves two distinct facets. In this case, an internal facet, the flesh and blood individual targeted by the pretense and an external facet, the cultural artifact brought into being by the pretense. So the fictional character now has, has two-sided entities 
and proper indication sentences, like our example, in both, both, both facets simultaneously. Now, if that's the view, I think that it is not straightforwardly incompatible with the fictional approach. Because according to the fictional approach, parafictional utterances talk about the flesh and blood individual, while metafictional utterances talk about the abstract artifact. And in our example, the second part, he's a British detective and so on, does talk about the flesh and blood individual, which is now construed as the internal facet of the fictional character. And I think that the crucial point, but I won't be able to actually elaborate on this, is that there are those things, not objects, but they, are, they have different facets. And at some point, we need to select one facet or the other when we say something about the dot object, about the dot object in quotes. Uh, we have to, if we want to say something, we've got to select the facet that we're talking about. Or think of quantification. If you want to quantify over books, for example, we've got to decide whether we're talking about material objects or about informational objects because the results will be different. So there is a process of facet selection that's sort of mandatory. And in particular, the various predicates in the utterance may select one facet or the other. And in general, I would say, no predication ever concerns, concerns the dot object as such. The dot object has to be conceptualized under one of the other of these guises in order for, as I mentioned, quantification or predication to take place. So it's quite possible to say the following, which is basically what the fictional theorist says. In our two-sentence discourse, the first sentence is metafictional. The name Sherlock Holmes refers to the cultural object. The second sentence is parafictional. The pronoun he refers under the pretense to the flesh and blood individual. And anaphora is possible because these are two facets of the same dot object. We can say that. If we say that, that means that we accept that there are dot objects and fictional characters are dot objects. But we still reject the ACP. And actually, the introduction of dot object was there to save the ACP. And it permits to save the ACP. But it doesn't force us to accept the ACP. We can accept dot objects but still reject the ACP by saying that in the street sense, this is not co-reference. We're talking about different things, even if these different things are facets of the same dot object. <laughs> so I don't think that the introduction of dot objects settles the issue between the two views. But still, we made some progress. I think the notion of dot object is interesting, even though it's very obscure. What's interesting is this idea of the two-sided character of, of fictional characters, the two-sided nature. So what I propose now to do is to actually reframe the whole issue in more cognitive terms and forget about dot objects as a, an aspect of reality. Actually, there is, a, as I said, uh, there is this technical literature on dot objects, and there is considerable controversy in that literature about the metaphysical status of dot objects. Some people want there to be some meteorological fusion of different things. Others want to use the notion of a thin particular. All sorts of theories, no one agrees, actually. And it's very obscure what they are. And some people, a whole group of people who write about the, this topic, are skeptical that there is any such thing out there in the world. And they say, like Chomsky has been very much interested in this. I mean, he has nice examples. Uh, London is one of his favorite example of a dot object. And what he says, uh, Chomsky, is that there is no such thing out there. It's not, this notion is not a notion for either science or metaphysics. It's simply that 
our concepts are very flexible and, and we can use a name like London to talk about many different things. Those things are sufficiently closely associated with each other for us to use the same, the same name and, and for us to have a single concept that encompasses all of these things. But this, there may be dot concepts, but there are no dot objects. So that would be the view. And that's certainly a more conservative view. So for the time being, I'm going to forget about the metaphysics of dot objects and, and look into concepts to see whether there are such multi, well, of course there are such multifaceted concepts, maybe all concepts, most concepts are like that, by the way. But we're interested in the concept of a fictional character. So let's consider that concept. And to, when it comes to concepts, I like the mental file framework for thinking about concepts. And I'm going to <coughs> present briefly the framework which has been mostly used to talk about singular concepts, individual concepts, concepts of particular objects, but that can be generalized to talk about concepts in general. Though here we're talking also about singular concepts like Sherlock Holmes, so. Okay, the uh, mental files, so one slide about the framework in general. Mental files are sort of psychological things like, that we use to refer to things, entities in the environment. So reference is done mostly, at, uh, mainly at the psychological level in this view. It's not something linguistic. Uh, there is, of course, linguistic reference, the reference of linguistic expressions, like the reference of the name Sherlock Holmes, but that is inherited, the reference of linguistic expression is inherited from the reference of the mental file we associate with the expression, the concept or the idea or whatever. Now, mental files, why talk of files? Because files store information about objects. Uh, the important thing being that since files are about objects, they store information about objects, they refer to objects, and they refer actually uh, in virtue of the reference of the file is, is, is not determined by the information in the file. The reference is not what fits the information in the file, but rather the reference of a mental file is determined through acquaintance relations to entities in the environment. The idea is that we have different files that track different sorts of relations we hold to entities in the environment, and the files store the information that we gain in virtue of standing in those, in, in those uh, relations. Like, well, I'm not going to spend too much time on mental files. I just want to introduce the notion and now apply it to the case of fictional reference. So in the case of fictional reference, well, if you're in a, using a name, a fictional name fictionally, you're writing a fiction or you're reading a fiction. In this sort of case, you pretend to stand in some acquaintance relation to, the, to a fictitious individual. Doesn't really exist, but we pretend that the individual exists and we pretend that we're standing in some acquaintance relation to that individual. Now, the relevant relation depends upon the type of fiction at stake, but let's take in the case of literary fiction, verbal narration or storytelling, uh, the relevant uh, acquaintance relation is a testimonial relation. There is a pretend testimonial relation. The storyteller pretends to be telling known facts uh, to the hearer. So that's we, we do just as in ordinary cases of testimony. If we presume that we stand in that relation to some object, testimony, we sort of open a file and we store in that file information we gain through testimony. And here we do exactly the same thing, except that it's pretense. So that's the fictional file and fictional reference. Now, metafictional reference. I have in mind the metafictional use of names, like Sherlock Holmes was uh, created in uh, 1887. Here I want to say, as I said at the beginning, that metafictional uses of names refer to the abstract artifacts, and they do so through a mental file that's similar to our file about the Fifth Symphony. That's 
I call that a metafictional file, a file about an abstract artifact, a file about a cultural object. So we do have a file about a cultural object in which we store information like what's created in 87, offer Conan Doyle, and things like that. I sort of, uh, I'm not going to talk about the, the issue of which acquaintance relation is involved when we refer to abstract objects. That's a problem in general. Please don't ask me questions about that. Now, this idea that we have both a fictional file about the flesh and blood individual who, who pretend exists, and a metafictional file about the abstract object which actually exists, the one that's brought into being by the fictional practice itself, this idea is actually defended by Enrico Theron, who has the put forward what he calls the two-fineness hypothesis, so I read. He says, information concerning fictional characters is split between two files. On the one hand, the fiction file clusters internal or nuclear, nuclear information concerning the character as a particular individual, as a flesh and blood individual, like in the case of Sherlock Holmes. He plays the violin, his friend, is, his friend with Watson, and so on and so forth. On the other hand, the source file, as he calls the metafictional file, the source file clusters external or extra-nuclear information concerning the character as a created abstract artifact, like offer Conan Doyle, created in 1887, so on. So there are these two files, he says. And I want to say the same thing, except that I think the duality between this internal perspective and this external perspective that corresponds in Theron to the distinction between these two files, I think the duality should also be internal to the metafictional file itself. Because we want our, ment uh, our file about the fictional character Sherlock Holmes to contain not only information about when it was created and who its author was, but we also want the file to contain information about what Sherlock Holmes does in the fiction, what sort of character he is, what his properties, his nuclear or primary or internal properties are. So this is an insight of the metafictional approach, the idea that we want the file to contain both the properties encoded by the fictional character and the properties exemplified by the fictional character. This is all information we have about the fictional character. And we want all that to be present in our metafictional file. So it's a, my view is a bit more complex than Terone because I accept that there are these two files, the fictional file and the metafictional file. But I think that the metafictional file, as it were, replicates the duality between the two perspectives, the external and the internal perspective. Now, and that duality corresponds to the two facets of the fictional character. Now, of course, the properties assigned to the fictitious individual in the fiction, the properties like playing the violin and so on and so forth, those properties are already stored in the fictional file, you will say. Of course, in your fictional file about the flesh and blood Sherlock Holmes, you have all the properties that you pretend the individual has when you read the fiction. So that's in your fictional file. And I've just said that you want the, this property also to be there in the metafictional file, because your information about the fictional character includes all that. And that seems to be redundant. But we can sort of avoid this redundancy by, instead of, of, of copying the properties in the fictional file into the metafictional file, we can simply include in the metafictional file a pointer to the fictional file. So if you have information about the fictional character Sherlock Holmes, that would include all the external information when it was created and so on. But also, there would be a pointer to your fictional file about the individual, what he does in the fiction. And that will be an important aspect of your metafictional file, this, this uh, pointer to the fictional file. 
So, so I think this two-sidedness, or which I'm now insisting, of fictional characters is very important. And I think it's a sort of fact that we can hardly think of the fictional character Sherlock Holmes without thinking of the flesh and blood individual Sherlock Holmes. Try. It's very difficult when you think about Sherlock Holmes not to think about the pipe-smoking, cap-wearing individual at the same time as you're, even if you're thinking, take it, trying to take a sort of external point of view on him. And this connection, uh, the fact that the metafictional file contains a pointer to the fictional file, and it's very hard to think uh, of the fictional character without also thinking of the flesh and blood individual, explains this smooth transition that you have in our co-predication example between a between the external perspective you have in the metafictional sentence and the immediate transition to the internal perspective in the parafictional sentence that follows. It's just a property of this mental structure that involves these, these two aspects that are closely linked. But the important thing at this stage, because now I want to, uh, I'm approaching the end of the talk, so I want to say why I eventually I go for the fictional approach so far. The important thing is that there is an asymmetry You've got this metafictional file that somehow depends on the fictional file. It involves the fictional file. It contains a pointer to the fictional file. If you don't have a fictional file, your concept of Sherlock Holmes is defective. If you only know that it was created by such, a, such and such an author and such and such a year, and you know nothing about the deeds of Sherlock Holmes, your metafictional concept is defective. So there is this dependence of the metafictional file on the fictional file. But in the other direction, it's not true. It is possible, I take it, I mean, it is all, everything is controversial, as I said, in this area, but I take it that it is possible to think about the flesh and blood individual Sherlock Holmes and to imagine states of affairs involving him without referring to or thinking about the abstract artifact. In other words, it's possible to deploy the fictional file without deploying the metafictional file, and that's typically what we do when we are immersed in the fiction. When we're reading the novel, we're not thinking about the fictional character, we're thinking about Sherlock Holmes. Now what's interesting is, here I'm basically following Evans. Evans says that this, uh, what I just said, applies to fictional speech. Fictional speech and thought doesn't rest on, on, on the, the, this capacity to refer to the abstract artifact. We can sort of read a novel, even if we don't have the concept of a fictional character, presumably. But what Evans says is that this also applies to parafictional speech and talk, uh, speech. <coughs> what he says is that parafictional talk does not constitutively involve reference to fictional characters. Not does it involve the ability to refer to them. According to Evans, parafictional talk is made of the same stuff as fictional thought and talk which only involves pretend reference to flesh and blood individuals. So that's the view, and I've got a quote from Evans. So you'll see what he means. He says, an ontology of abstract objects, the sort of thing that we have when we say things like the character of Falstaff has a long history in English drama when we talk about fictional characters. He says, an ontology of abstract objects of that sort is excessively sophisticated for the needs of parafictional discourse. And he says, someone can engage in a conversation about when, what went on in the novel perfectly competently without in any way needing to know how one might count characters, whether two authors can use the same character and the like. 
So I think it's basically the basic ability to, to read fiction, to practice, to, to be a consumer of fiction, or even to write fiction, and so on. This ability doesn't presuppose the more sophisticated ability of referring, talking about individuating fictional characters. And I think that's really very much what the fictional approach wants to say. The fictional approach says that parafictional speech and thought is very much like fictional speech and thought. So the audience of a fictional utterance, what does the audience do? The audience of a fictional utterance imagines the fictional state of affairs. For example, Sherlock comes shaking his head and lighting his pipe. That's all that the, the audience does, imagine that state of affairs. Likewise, the audience of a parafictional utterance imagines a fictional state of affairs while simultaneously at the difference, studying that state of affairs as one that is depicted in the fiction. So when you're reading a parafictional sentence like in the fiction, Sherlock Holmes does such and such things, you imagine Sherlock Holmes doing those things just as you do when you read a fiction, but at the same time you're sort of tagging, reflectively tagging this state of affairs as one that's depicted in the fiction. So you're looking at things from two perspectives simultaneously. Now, of course, there is an, some people might object that when we say in Cronendal's stories, Sherlock Holmes is a detective, which is a parafictional sentence, we explicitly refer to the fiction by means of the phrase Cronendal's stories. And that means that we do take a metafictional perspective. We're talking about the fiction. And that's true. But the point is, this is not something I deny. The idea is that the name Sherlock Holmes in such a parafictional utterance does not itself refer to the abstract artifact. So we do take a metafictional stance towards the fiction, which is referred to by the, by the utterance via the tag in Cronendall's stories. We do refer to the fiction. In that respect, we do take a metafictional stance. But the fictional character is not thereby referred to itself, stricto sensu. The audience merely imagines the flesh and blood individual in the course of imagining the state of affairs of which it is a constituent. And as I said, in addition, the audience tags the state of affairs in question as one that holds in the fiction. But at no point in this process do we have to refer to the fictional character. So this is basically this schema, hopefully summarize my position, even though it's sort of a bit complex. But So this is really an instance of the fictional approach, because so I've got these two files, the fictional file and the metafictional file. The metafictional file is two-sided. And both fictional uses and parafictional uses involve deployment of the fictional file. So parafictional uses are just a variety of fictional uses, indeed, uh, from the cognitive point of view. The same ability to deploy a fictional file, to pretend, is involved. There is something more complex, because at the same time as you pretend, there is this sort of a tagging that takes place. There is some metafictional components, but it's not involved in the at the level of the reference of the name Sherlock Holmes. The reference of the name Sherlock Holmes is just pretend reference to the non-existent individual. That's all it is. So fictional uses and parafictional uses are on the same side. They involve the deployment of the fictional file, as opposed to metafictional uses, which involve the deployment of the metafictional file. But of course, the metafictional file itself has this two-sided property. It contains this pointer to the fictional file. It's very hard to deploy the metafictional file without activating the, the, the fictional file. And indeed, this is also something very important for the fictional approach, and I'm going to end with this. It's important to realize that the only access we have to the content of a fiction, 
So suppose someone tells me about a certain, suppose I don't know a fiction, a certain story, for example, the Turn story, and someone wants to tell me about it, to inform me about it. The only way for me to access the internal content of the story, that is, the properties encoded by the fictional character, in the case if someone tells me about Holmes, the only way for me to access the, the properties encoded by the fictional character is to actually imagine what the fiction prescribes its practitioners to imagine. That is, it's to deploy the fictional file corresponding to the fictional character, and there is no other way. If there is another way of learning about the properties encoded by the fictional character than actually imagining the themes and deploying something like the fictional file, let me know. Uh, I'll stop here. <laughs>